across the blue line. Leaves it. Kale McCarr winds, fires, score! Now Rubido, top of the near circle, pass far side, wide open net. What a save made by Philip Grubauer. Just outstanding stuff. I am Grub. And Zadorov oh. smash! <laughs> oh my goodness! Yep. What a bone-crushing hit by Nikita Zadorov. And Howard Luck has no idea what day it is, what time zone he's in, and he is slowly making his way towards the bench. Hello, everybody out there in Avalanche land, and welcome to another episode of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to Avalanche podcast. I'm your host, J.J. Jerez. With me, of course, Arif Dean. Arif, quick off-season question to kick off the pod here for you. Have you ever seen or met someone famous only to later realize who they actually were? And while you were talking to them, perhaps you had no idea? I'm so happy you started with that. I didn't know you were even going to start with that. Uh, I haven't. Um, I also haven't been a weather reporter in a rest area somewhere in Boston. So, no, I've never felt that feeling before. Yeah, of course, I'm referring to the Jerome McGinley interview, getting uh, interviewed there in Boston about the weather and uh, the winter. What's funny is this isn't the first time we've seen this. We've seen this happen yeah. with Roberto Luongo. I think Alex uh, Alex Ovechkin had this happen to him Carl one time. Alsner. Carl Alsner wants traffic to change in Washington. It's, <laughs> it's so funny when it happens. And, like, just the way that the interview went, like, he just— he just sounded first of all he sounded like the nicest guy in the world because if anybody approaches Jerome McGinley on the street and says hey can I borrow you for 30 seconds for an interview he's going to say yes right. second of all it sounded like a second intermission interview it was it was such a hockey interview and i feel like he kind of misses it so he just went with it uh, and i have the quote here it was awesome it's you know the weather's pretty tough we're from canada so it's not too crazy againla said i mean we got some winter tires i'm used to this growing up it's not great i'll tell you you get some tough stretches but if you don't go too fast <laughs> it's doable you get some tough stretches this guy turned the weather report into a second intermission interview it's just awesome the same againla smile the same everything i hope that reporter eventually gets told who that was and she gets to she gets to meet with him and you know talk to him about it again cuz just what a down to earth guy that was the funniest thing on twitter yesterday. Yesterday. Just reminds me of when he was on the Avs and, you know, sometimes you'd go into that locker room, especially that season when it was just the worst year ever. There was only yeah. so many people that'd be willing to talk. So, of course, Jerome Gimlin was always willing to talk. You walk up to him, hey, I know it was a terrible game for everybody, but hey, you mind talking to me real quick? And he'd do that. So I know how the weather lady feels, right? Just feeling, oh, man, this guy's ready to go. And then, yeah, the fact that, he, like you said, he turned it in. I remember interviewing Jerome Ginley. And sometimes you're like, shoot, maybe I shouldn't have interviewed Jerome again, because now I'm sitting here for 10 minutes <laughs> as he's blabbing on about God knows what. So, you know, that's probably how the weather lady felt, too. It, it's funny to feel. It's just funny to see hockey players always going unnoticed like that. I think that's secretly why they like playing in the USA yeah. a little bit more over Canada. Yeah. And it happened in Boston. Boston's a pretty big hockey town. And this isn't even one of those things where I'm going to say, oh, typical Boston. No, this isn't typical Boston. This was one news reporter that had no idea who the hell she was talking to, or maybe realized it afterward, because let's face it, it was a nighttime report uh, on, on the local Channel 25, whatever their local news channel is. She could have probably finished it and then looked down and went, holy crap, that's Jerome McGinley. He played here once. Or maybe she just didn't know who he was in general, but it's 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 a funny thing, and I just love his quote. You know, yeah, we're from Canada, so it's not too crazy. It's Jerome McGinley. It's, it's funny. <laughs> 
Well, and and I think you know you look back at when Kadri first came to the Avalanche, and that was one of the first things he mentioned to us is just how uh, kind of nice it's going to be to not really be recognized yeah. on every street corner and every gas station. And yeah. I remember Nathan McKinnon. Even we we saw last year, right when TMZ got into his face and was like, "Oh man, Nathan McKinnon," he's like, "I'm a nobody." And while we sit here and laugh at it, it's kind of the sad truth about the NHL, right? That just it's so unpopular that. A guy can be standing there at a gas station and not be recognized, uh, even in a city that he played in, as an as a Hall of Famer. So, um, you know, again, it's it's a bit sad. At the same time, it's funny. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's just hockey culture in America. That's why the top players in the NHL make ten, eleven, twelve million dollars, and there's only a few of them, uh, which is about the equivalent of the number eight guy on the death chart in the NBA. And that's that's why it's like that. It's because the popularity is not there in this country. Um, but it's 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 just it's a funny thing. I mean, I know there there was a situation where this happened with Clay Thompson of the Golden State Warriors. Uh, so that's one of the, the cases where this has happened. But if it happens once in the NBA, it happens four or five times. The Luongo one in Florida, obviously, uh, it's it's a funny thing to see. But I just love that hockey players are always up for an interview. They're always up to come blab on, and especially someone like Aginla. Um, like I said, that was the funniest thing on Twitter yesterday. Uh, it also gave us. A hockey player to talk about because god do we miss talking about hockey players because it's a weird time right now and you know hockey is maybe coming back maybe not who knows well and that's the thing is it, the popularity issue is really what's making the return in the 2021 season so slow to get announced and so slow to get worked out because they just aren't in the financial position as some of these other leagues. So let's get into that again. We're still waiting for the <laughs> announcement of the 2021 season. Right now we're hearing everything between January 15th as late as February 1st. I mean, I asked you this millions times. Let's ask it again. What are you thinking? What's your guess for the best start? I think they're going to start January 15th. I think training camp is going to start January 1st or 2nd as, you know, the news came out that Elliot Friedman and Frank Saravalli broke uh, TSN and Sportsnet a couple days ago. I think that is what's going to end up happening. Uh, there's a bunch of logistical issues and financial issues that they're going to have to get figured out before then. Uh, but they can't not do it. They know they can't let this season go by. As much as there's those two or three or four owners, Larry Brooks at the New York Times released an article today, or the New York Post, I should say, released an article today saying that there was a few owners that were pushing it, one of them being, surprise, surprise, Jeremy Jacobs of the Boston Bruins, um, who's not the most well-liked guy in the NHL circles. But the NHL just can't afford to let that happen. It's funny to me that a lot of these owners own NHL and NBA teams, and they're able to return to the NBA so simply, but not to the NHL because of the TV money that they're going to get from the NBA. So I still think January 15 will be that date. I think they're going to have training camp started by January 2nd. I think it, they totally dropped the ball on not getting to this a couple of weeks ago because that January 1st date, that's the hockey day. If there's anything that Gary Bettman has done a good job at, it's creating this buzz around January 1st being for hockey. Just like Christmas is for the NBA, just like that Super Bowl in late January, early February, January 1 is hockey day. And I think the NHL needed to just be push a little bit harder to make sure that date works. And they didn't. And that's a disappointment. But at this point, 48 games, 52 games, 56 games, just get the season going, let it happen, award the cup by late June. Prepare for the Seattle expansion or late June, early July. Prepare for the Seattle expansion and let's get back to going, you know, the normal 82 in October 2021. A couple, couple things to talk about there. Uh, let's start with the 
number of games. I mean, it's like you said, it's anywhere between I, I I'm hearing fifty and fifty six games somewhere somewhere around that realm. That sounds pretty yeah. intense, especially in what a ninety maybe a hundred day period. I mean, that's going to be really tough on the players. So yeah. we've talked about the importance of goaltending in the past, but this year. You're going to need every guy they are allowed to carry, if not more. You know what I mean? Organizational depth is going to be more important than ever. Deeper, you know, it's not so much about, oh, wow, these third and fourth lines are really stepping up. No, it's going to be deeper than that. You, you know, I think we're going to see uh, there's going to be a chance for some up-and-comers to really make a name for themselves and create a mainstay for themselves because I think teams are going to have to go so deep into their organization to really have a healthy roster and not exhaust these guys, right? Look, you know, the, the, the cool thing about the NHL um, the NHL hosting a 48, 52, or 56-game season this year, it's that they've been through this before. They've absolutely done it before. And in 2015, or sorry, 2013, when the, when the season was cut short because of that lockout, the NHL started on January 19th, and they played 48 games. Now, in that 48-game season in 2013, they got 28 games done between January 19th all the way through to through to April, and they awarded the Stanley Cup on June 24th. So if you take that 2013 season that they had, and if you remember the 2013 season was pretty much, it was escalated. There was a lot of games in a short amount of time, but the NHL is hoping to award the Cup by July 7. So on top of that June 24 day when the Blackhawks won game six to win the Cup, add another two weeks on it, and then bring the Cup bring the season in the beginning of the year down from January 19 to January 15, you have about an extra 20 days to mess with. So it's already going to be less crammed than the 2013 season. And in those extra 20 days, what are you going to add? You're going to go up from 48 to probably 56 games. So everybody this year is pretty much going to have to play the same schedule they had in 2013, except you get an extra 20 days to play an extra eight games. Plus, this is a big thing, let's not forget the possibility of having to reschedule games at the end of the year. So those extra 20 days will give you a buffer just in case there's outbreaks, just in case there are situations like in the NFL, uh, as we saw recently, where games need to get pushed back. So if there's one thing the NHL has experience with, it's starting a season halfway through the year, halfway through what's usually a, a full year for the NHL, and and getting it done at, a, at an appropriate time and finishing at an appropriate time. And I think that's what they're going to pull off this time. But yeah, absolutely. Goaltending depth is going to matter. That's why I still think the Avalanche need a third string goalie. That's why I still think teams like Toronto who have a starter in Anderson, a backup in Campbell, and a third string goalie in Arundel are going to be the teams that are going to succeed. That's also why we'll get into this later, why I think the Dallas Stars are going to struggle this year. Because without Bishop, they have Anton Hudobin and Jake Ottinger. That's your one-two for the first three months of the season. That's going to be an issue for them. It's just going to go deeper than goaltending, I think. Yeah. You know, it, it's all the way through 1 through 25, whoever's yep. got the best group of 25. But that brings me to the second issue. If we go to a January 15th season start, it sounds like training camps are going to get cut in about half to a down to about two weeks. Um, now, we saw with the NFL, they didn't have any sort of preseason or anything like that. They had kind of a camp. But then we saw once they started, a ton of injuries just came 
uh, right in the first couple weeks of the season. So you'd hate to see that happen with the NHL, especially if they're planning on trimming down those training camps a little. Now, I think two weeks is still probably plenty of time to get in shape. And, you know, a lot of people have said that training camps as they are are already too long. So maybe we're okay, and maybe we've found something that we could use for the future. But yeah. I think it's still something to think about. You know, there, there might be some health risks you know, at least in terms, not not in terms of COVID, but in terms of, you know, injuries and whatnot to uh, having a shorter training camp. So the reason why that to me is not as big in the, as an issue as it was, or it could have been months ago is because we literally just saw the NHL go through this. They paused the season in March. They did not play for most of March, all of April, all of May, all of June. And then they started up those last couple of days of July after a two week training camp and one exhibition game. And, and then I think the avalanche were injured for the rest of the year the avalanche were injured before that too but like that's the thing i mean i mean this is this is probably what's going to happen again if i had to guess if i was a betting man um i would say which i could be a filthy degenerate sometimes with the gambling if i was a betting man i would say that the nhl is going to have a two-week training camp they're going to have everybody's going to get one exhibition game which is going to be a little bit confusing because you have 31 teams so they're, they'll figure that out later <laughs> um Maybe they give the seven teams each two exhibition games and then the remaining 24 each one exhibition game, but they're going to do that and go right into a season. Obviously, the season is going to be very fast paced uh, and the Avalanche were one of the teams last year that played once every three or four days because they had that round robin stage. But look at the New York Islanders. The Islanders were a team that went through this two-week training camp, one exhibition game, straight into a five-game playoff series, straight into round one, straight into round two, straight into taking the lightning to game six of round three. So it's doable. It's something the NHL can do. It's hard to compare it to the NFL because the NFL is, the, is just a far more physically demanding sport, and it's a lot tougher and more taxing on the body. That's why they play once a week. But uh, it's it's something to keep an eye on, but I don't think it's going to be as big an issue um, because it's something they've done before. They did it in 2013. Uh, they just did it five, six months ago, however the hell long it's been. 2020 feels like it's been a decade in itself, but it's something they have experience with. And I don't think that'll be a big issue. But like I said, if I was a betting man, I would say that everybody's going to get one or two exhibition games. Uh, and if I had to pick, I would think the 24 teams that played in the, in the return to play last July and August will get one game. And those other seven teams will each get two games. Like I said, the Avalanche did end up battling quite a few injuries even after the yeah. restart, and I know they weren't the only ones, so I'm still a little nervous about it. I think yeah. it's a good opportunity for the Martin Couts, the Logan O'Connors, the TJ, Tyn TJ Tynans of mm -hmm. the NHL to really step up. And, you know, look what happened to Rocco Grimaldi, right? I mean, he was an AHLer, goes to Nashville, and made a name for himself. And now I, I, I guess I haven't followed him in the last couple, uh, um, in the last playoff session there, but I, I don't. Last I remember, he was a mainstay on that Nashville Predators. Yeah, team. he was score. He was scoring at like a zero point five point per game pace, which is a forty one point over the season. So, he turned into a mainstay. He he turned himself into that, and that's something the Avalanche. You know, I would I would love for them to have that because they've always their depth has always been tested, and then you start to realize really quickly how top heavy the team is. And by top heavy, I mean twelve or thirteen guys, because the same exact thing happened last year. When you started to see the Couts and players like that playing in the in the or not Cout but Logan O'Connor and then Tynan and these guys playing in the playoffs, Cout in the regular season, uh, we've seen in years past where they've had to use guys like Brad Malone. You've seen in years past where they've had to pull deep into the depths of their AHL team. Uh, it's not a pretty picture. They don't have much depth outside of their top twelve or thirteen guys. Um, and they always do this thing every year where they sign three or four AHL guys hoping to strike gold, and it never works. 
So hopefully this is the year. You know, we've had Andrew Agazzino come through the system a couple times. Guys like that, you need one of those to pan out like Rocco Grimaldi has in Nashville. And I think this year more than ever, the Avs are going to be tested uh, because their depth is going to be tested this year. I mean, they they acquired Nemesnikov at the deadline and made Tyson Joseph 13th forward, and that still didn't matter because they were just so injured. And that's why I've I've gone back and forth on this issue, but you know how the Rangers aren't letting Alexi Lafreniere play in the juniors, and you know Jack Hughes isn't going to play. I feel like from the team's standpoint, I understand the worry about getting your top players injured, but at this point, I think you want them playing some real games, get that game shape back into you, get your legs under you before you go into training camp, rather than almost starting from scratch. Because I mean, yeah, they could be training right now, but you know one. One guy training on the ice just doesn't do the uh, the good that game situations can do. So uh, it's it's isn't interesting. It, yeah, isn't it funny how how teams go about this completely different and they always have a have a different differing opinion on it because Kirby Doc was drafted third overall last year, and he's with Canada. Yeah. And he played a full season. He had a hell of a playoff run in that short mm-hmm. Blackhawks run that they had where they upset yeah. the Oilers. He did well. He played well against Vegas, and he's going to the juniors. But the number one overall pick that did not have a good season last year is not going. And the number one overall pick this year that at the age of 18, or I think he's 19 now, Alexis Lafreniere, hasn't played in nearly a year for the first time in his life. You know, this isn't a Nazem Kadri. This isn't a Joe Thornton. This isn't a player that's had a very taxing, you know, career and needs time off, needs maintenance. This is a young 18-year-old, 19, 18, 19-year-old kid. It's really interesting how teams sort of have a differing opinion of it. I think it says to me the Blackhawks are okay with the idea of this season being a tanking year. And if he gets hurt, so be it. And if he develops well from the tournament, which is probably what's going to happen, knock on wood, he doesn't get hurt, then that's great. I don't know why the Devils would hold back Jack Hughes. I especially don't know why the Rangers would hold back Lafreniere because I don't think any of those teams are in the position of a Vegas or a Colorado or a Tampa Bay where they're really going to push for the cup this year. Uh, Yes, the NHL is a league of parity. Yes, anything can happen. Yes, you could be the next Dallas Stars. But I just think there's more good than bad. Uh, There's far more reward than risk with having your players go to the tournament like that, especially at a time where it's going to do nothing but give them a head start. It's going to give them a training camp before training camp. It's going to give them intense hockey to play coming into a training camp where 18, 19-year-old fresh legs has already got his feet wet playing against a bunch of veterans that have been sitting at home since March for those seven teams that haven't played. Yeah, I like that logic, though. That makes sense with the different mindset between the Chicago Blackhawks and New York Rangers, right? New York Rangers are gearing up. They think they can really make a a splash here, and they've got an X factor coming in. They don't want to jeopardize that, whereas Kirby Doc, like you said, Chicago can can either – do with or without, because either way, this season is a wash for them. So moving on, um, a couple podcasts ago, we kind of brought up the idea of maybe having the NHL shift to all outdoor games. You and I shot that down pretty quickly just because financially it doesn't seem feasible. Um, yeah. But now it sounds like they're starting to kind of revisit that. So um, honestly, it kind of sounds like it's getting shot down just as quickly from the yeah. NHL, though. So, yeah, so that's the thing. The NHL is not revisiting this. Revisiting This This is a bunch of teams and ownerships and, and front offices that are bored and trying to think of ways to make money. I feel like it's me and my friends where we all come to the table and we're like, all right, let's go buy Jordans for 100 bucks and sell them for 120 Let's make some <laughs> money as college students. This is what it sounds like. I think it's Pittsburgh. It's a couple teams in California. Uh, I forget what the other city is, but 
the reality of, of, of something like that is the NHL has done a really excellent job with their outdoor games because they have this ice crew led by, I believe his name is Daniel Craig or Dan Craig and this big NHL truck that carries these boards and this big ice machine and this refrigeration system and they drive to Coors Field and they set up that game and then to Air Force and then to Fenway Park and to Wrigley Field and the big house in Ann Arbor. They go to all these places, they set it up. That's not going to be available to these teams. These teams want to go out of their way to pretty much create this entire department within their team. With no experience, they don't know what they're doing. They're going to buy a refrigeration system and suddenly they're going to it's, it's just, it's not really going to happen. But what I do love about it, it says one thing to me. It says NHL teams are finally thinking outside the box, finally doing things that could bring the NHL more revenue and more money. And that to me is a good thing. The fact that the NHL extended the playoffs last year, like they did to me says they're finally thinking outside the box. If it took a pandemic for the NHL to stop with this old boys club uh, and, and stop with this tradition that they can't break then then that's a positive to get out of what's been happening these last nine, 10 months. Um, maybe one day we could see little advertisements on Jersey similar to the NBA. You know, I'm not opposed to that little logo up there if it's going to mean far more money, if it's going to mean that your McKinnons are making 15, 16 million instead of whatever his next deal is going to be, 10 or 11. Um, it's it's a way to grow the game. And it's it's just, it's exciting for me to see teams like Pittsburgh is the, is the city that I was thinking of actually thinking up something like this because this goes against the norm and that's what we need in the nhl the biggest issue i have with it i understand you know just trying to figure something out and being creative thinking outside of the box create some revenue so we could have some butts in the stands but yeah i didn't go to the most recent outdoor game reason being I went to the outdoor game before that. Not only that, I went to the DUCC game, I went to the alumni yeah. game, and I yep. went to the main game at Coors Field. Yeah, all, it'll, it'll get oversaturated real all, quick. All three of those games, I had a terrible seat. I had three different yeah. seats in all three, all three games, and all three of them sucked. There was no good... I felt like there was no good seat in the house. And if there was, yeah. you're still really far from the game. You can't see. You need binoculars. It's just not a good product out there in the stadiums. Yeah. It's fun. It kind of looks okay on TV. But as far as the uh, fan experience, I think it kind of blows. So I don't, I don't like the solution. What makes the fan experience fun for games like that is the spectacle is the spectacle of this big crazy game where you're going to have a band at the first intermission and this airplane that flies over uh, at the big house. It was this big, beautiful snowstorm. It looked like we were sitting in a snow globe. I'm still freezing from that day seven years ago. Um, that's what makes those games exciting. In 2020 and in 2021, it's, it's a time where that's the only option to have fans. And I think there's crazy hockey fans out there that are stupid enough to say, I'd rather freeze my ass off outside with a terrible seat than watch it on TV. Um, and with that being said, I still think it's not going to happen. I personally get a seat in the, in, in ball, I was going to say the Pepsi Center, in Ball Arena, in the press box, and it's going to be really weird to watch these games without fans. Um, but there's fans out there that, you know, if, if that's the only option for them to watch a game, they're going to do it. Uh, but again, with that being said, I just don't think the NHL is going to allow these teams to do that. I don't think these teams are going to pull it off financially. Um, it's just one of those things to get us by in December where they're like, let's think up something new. Uh, but the reality is it likely won't happen. Hey, knocked out a couple minutes on our podcast. But <laughs> on the same lines of thinking outside the box in the NHL, the uh, EA Sports, I guess, kind of accidentally leaked what all the entire 
NHL's new uniform kits are going to be looking like. You had some interesting ones in there, like the uh, Edmonton yeah. Oilers orange shorts. Um, I think that yep. was interesting. I think we saw the burgundy is what's actually going to be worn with the reverse retro jersey for the Avalanche. That caught me by surprise. Yeah, definitely. That definitely caught me by surprise. And now we saw what they're actually planning with these blue shorts and blue gloves to be the main uh, part of the uniform every single night. Now, I think it looks good with the home jerseys, but with the away ones, honestly, I, I kind of gagged a little bit the first one the time I saw it. With the away ones, they need to switch to the burgundy shorts badly. It would look so much better. I, I like the fact that they're keeping the white helmet because that would have looked weird with a blue helmet. I don't think the NHL would have even allowed the away team to wear a, a, a dark color like that as a helmet. But the home jerseys look beautiful. The burgundy shorts actually catches me by surprise because that means there is no Nordiques blue anywhere on the jersey. Granted, avalanche blue and Nordiques blue is a lot different. It's a it's a far darker shade, the avalanche blue. But it looks a lot like Nordiques blue. If they had those blue shorts, it would have mimicked what Joe Sackick looked like wearing a Nordiques jersey back in the day. But they're going completely burgundy. So they've really retroed up or, 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 or really uh, avalanched up that retro jersey. Uh, and I think it looks beautiful. I think I'd give it a year or two, and I'd 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 hope the the Avalanche is are gonna look at what their away jerseys look like with those blue shorts and say let's just switch it to burgundy. The fact that the Nordiques jersey is gonna have burgundy shorts says to me that idea is already in their system, and it would be an easy transition to put that into the away jersey. It would look so good. But I really like the home jerseys. I I like what they're doing. Uh, the black never really fit in. It was just kind of a thing they did. Um, and I'm excited to see it. It's it's the new age avalanche with a new age jersey, and and they're going to win a lot of Stanley Cups looking like that. You remember looking back at the inaugural game there, the very first yeah. game, and they were wearing their yep. white jerseys with black helmets. Remember yeah, how it weird was that so looked? awkward. Yeah, I tweeted out a picture of it. It looks so weird. I think the NHL probably stepped in and said, "What are you doing? Yeah, uh, we can't have ten floating heads all have black helmets. You're the away. You're the home team. Put on a white helmet." What's funny too is probably ten years from now we're gonna look back at the black short, the black breezers and the black helmets and black gloves, and we're gonna think that that looks weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that, exactly. that's kind of a strange thing. But a, a, a big reason for this shakeup, I think, obviously, is the 25th anniversary from the Colorado Avalanche. So I think this is a really great week to sit back and kind of look back at the last 25 years. It's crazy to think this is now my eighth season of 25. Um, it, it just blows my mind, but. This was a great week because it was the anniversary week of one of the most iconic figures to ever step foot in Colorado to wear a Colorado jersey, right? And that's Patrick Waugh. So let's look back a little bit at the Patrick Waugh trade. What are some things you remember? What are some things you love? I mean, Patrick Waugh, such an iconic figure, I think. And without him, Colorado hockey scene is nowhere near what it is today. Yeah, well, it's a funny. It's funny that you said this is the week where we celebrate it. Today we're recording on Sunday, December sixth. This is the exact day of the twenty-five year anniversary of that trade. Going into what we're hoping is going to be the training camp for the twenty-fifth season, the Avalanche have ever had. Um, make no mistake about it, Patrick Waugh uh, changed the way that hockey would have ever been viewed in this in the state. Colorado would not nearly be the hockey state that it is had it not been for him. I truly believe, uh, for starters, and this is not you know a hot take by any means, the Avalanche would not have won that cup in 96 without Patrick Waugh. They didn't have the goalie. And that kind of makes me worried about this upcoming season, but the NHL is a lot different now than it was back then. Back then, you needed a Patty Waugh. You needed a Hashik. You needed a Brodeur. You needed a Belfour, a Cujo, one of those guys. Um, 
and the Avalanche went out and got one. I think it's it's uh, it's fascinating to think of what it would have been like for the Avalanche. They would have been kind of like Vegas, just that really good team. Granted, Vegas is an expansion team, but they would have been that team that just was really good for the first you know few years of its existence without ever winning the cup. Um, so I truly believe that that itself is not a hot take. But what is, in my opinion, might be a hot take is had it not been for the Patrick Watt acquisition, the Avalanche market would be nothing more than a market like a Carolina, a team that has good years, that has bad years, that has a fan base, but is always considered one of the bottom feeders in the NHL in terms of revenue. I know the Avalanche are by, are by no means the Rangers or the Leafs or the Habs or the Red Wings or the Blackhawks in terms of revenue, but they're a middle of the pack revenue team. And when they're good, they jump up to the top. And I think that Patrick was the reason why they are like that rather than being a Carolina or in Arizona, or a Florida, or something like that. I love that take. I think you're 100% spot on, but not only from a hockey standpoint, I also think from a popularity standpoint, right? I mean, the Avalanche came in here. They were exciting. They were fun. We had the Denver Grizzlies in town the year yeah. before, so hockey kind of had its introduction. Um, and plus, this was a playoff team, right? The Nordiques made the playoffs the year before, so they were looking to make that next step. So it was exciting. It was fun. But then when Patrick Waugh came in, you know, and had this swagger about him, had this different style to him, had, you know, was the the athlete that loves to open his mouth when when he's talking to the media, right, and say funny things or say something a little bit controversial. He took everything by storm, and suddenly, you know, he took the Avalanche from a level eight up to level eleven, right? So, without him, hockey in Colorado, I think you're right. It's it's a much more comparable. To what it what it's like in Carolina. I love that. I love yeah. that take. He 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 really kept everybody on their toes. He he brought he brought stability to an organization that was when acquired from Quebec and when relocated from Quebec, a team that was on the rise, a team that developed and built all of these draft picks and all of these uh, uh, these young stars. But in 1995, during that shortened season, because the NHL's had that twice already. <laughs> um, during that short and 48-game season in 95, the Nordiques were the top seed in the East and bowed out in the first round. So that was how they said bye to their team. And a large part of that was because they didn't have the stability and gold that Patrick Wall bought to the Avalanche. Um, it's not the same stability he bought to the coaching staff 15 years later, but it's the same stability that he brought to the Avalanche in goal. And like I said, that's why, to me, the Avalanche were able to grow into the team that they were, the team that won two Stanley Cups, the team that made it to the Western Conference final six times in the first seven years, um, and a team that became on the map as one of the NHL powerhouses, a team that got on the map as, as a team that, when they're good, they really will always be one of the NHL's best in terms of revenue and someone who is not ever in the conversation for relocation or a low-budget franchise. Uh and I, I truly think Patrick Wall is the main reason behind that. He's the biggest reason behind that. I know you had your Joe Sackix and your Peter Forsbergs, but without Patty, the Avalanche would not be where they are today. Absolutely. And there's so many awesome Patrick Wall stories out there, and you know, from him throwing temper tantrums yeah. and, and breaking stuff. But you know the best Patrick Wall stories have yet to be told. I can't wait till one day somebody can finally come out and maybe really tell some Patrick Wall stories, whether it's coach or player they're going to be yeah. entertaining and awesome and, and i can't wait to finally get those um yeah anything else on patrick why you want to get out there uh, before we take a quick break for DraftKings? no that's basically it i think i think what's the coolest thing about the the anniversary of that patrick Wah trade and this is something that happened a little bit 
you know, a, a few days before the actual trade took took place on December 6, 1995, was that night in Montreal where he was shelled by the Red Wings. Scotty Bowman came in, uh, you know, had some beefs with the Montreal coach. He kept bringing out his top stars. At the same time, Mario Tremblay, the coach of the Canadians, kept Patrick Waugh in there to send a message to his starting goalie. Little did he know that would be the last he'd ever have of Patrick Waugh. And he was shelled for nine goals. And the Red Wings won 11-2. to And Patrick Waugh walked up to Ronald Corey, the president of the Montreal Canadiens, sitting in that first row right behind the bench, said something to him, and then turned around. And the broadcast of the game, if you go back and watch the highlights of that, they completely shifted. They did not care about the game anymore. They knew in that moment something big had happened. Now, the most fascinating thing about that story, this is a story that's been beaten to the ground. But could you imagine something like that happening in the times of social media and Twitter? Could you imagine having the ability to watch that, being a reporter or a fan, but let's say a reporter like you and me sitting at Ball Arena, watching the Avalanche game, looking down on the ice, seeing Patrick Waugh do that with the president of their of the team, and then being able to tweet, this just happened, and the, and, and the fuss that it would have caused. It's fascinating to think there are so many big NHL moments that had Twitter been around would have been encapsulated into something bigger. Uh, this, to me, is one of those. It also makes me think, obviously, there's so many differences in the game now. If I saw that happen, you'd have to think, well, where's the glass behind the bench? Where did that go? And why the hell is the owner yeah. sitting front row? That's the yeah. weirdest thing I've ever seen. So, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, that was it would be a much different situation. But, yeah, I think there's a lot of great hockey moments that if Twitter around would really, uh, I think, have blown up a little bit more. One that comes to my mind, I think, is the Marty McSorley and Donald Brashear incident, right? When Marty McSorley took a stick to Donald Brashear's head. It was a big deal. Yeah. It was all over ESPN at the time. But I think it also got pushed to the wayside. We saw uh, Marty McSorley get into the Hall of Fame this past year. So I think a lot of people forgot about that monumental yeah. moment really defining his career. That was the end of his career, too. I don't believe he played a game after that. So take that story and let's bring it local. Imagine the Steve Moore, Todd Bertuzzi incident happening in the days of social media. Imagine being able to tweet about that live. Imagine the buildup, the buildup of when what happened against the Canucks earlier where Moore hit Nasland and Nasland was hurt. And that was that 4 season when Nasland was leading the league in scoring. Uh, and then Steve Moore or Matt Cook or whoever, not, not Steve Moore, Todd Bertuzzi and Matt Cook and everybody coming out on the Canucks side and basically putting a bounty on the head of Steve Moore. Imagine seeing that and then seeing crazy rabid avalanche fans jump to Twitter to talk about that, seeing people tweeting at Bertuzzi or at Steve Moore, at Mark Crawford, or at, uh, who was the avalanche's coach, Tony Granato at the time, assuming these guys all have Twitter accounts. It would have just been a really, really fascinating site and something that would have been, I hate to use the word cool, was such a, you know, a, a terrible moment, an infamous moment in NHL history and avalanche history, but it would have been a really cool moment to see happen on social media if it broke down in the age of social media and Twitter. Well, if you look back and remember when Todd Bertuzzi would come back to town after the Steve Moore incident, Avs fans were ruthless. I mean, I remember guys dressing yeah. up as prisoners, just people yep. screaming at him, booing. Imagine if you could just tweet directly at Todd Bertuzzi after that incident. It would have it would have been a total horror show. Twitter would have turned into a dangerous place where uh it it would have been one of those situations. I mean, Bertuzzi already coming to the city was was someone that was on high alert because you never know. But considering the types of threats and tweets he would have received, he would have been on far greater alert. 
I also think he would he would have felt a little bit more remorse that because it feels like he he didn't. It feels like yeah. he kind of just walked away, kind of smiled his way out of the courtroom, and you know felt like he uh, got away with something. Where I feel like maybe if people really drilled into his head that what he did was a, a shitty thing, he he might have felt a little bit more remorse and, and not kind of played it off the way he did. You know, I know you were talking about how you're you're you know wishing for the day where somebody comes out and tells more stories about Patrick Wall, more untold stories. Me personally, it's the more Bertuzzi incident. It's being able to dig into that and really dig into stories and and the outcome of that that have not been told. You know, one of them being Brian Burke, who was the GM of the of the Vancouver Canucks at the time, who's a very big name in hockey media now after leaving the NHL front office game. Uh, he later became the GM of the Anaheim Ducks during the lockout. And when he came out in that 05-06 season after the lockout, he actually offered Steve Moore a two-way contract at league minimum, which at the time was $500,000. And a lot of people looked at that as a move to say, Steve can absolutely play hockey now. And this is at the time where the court cases were still pending. So there's a lot of things that were happening behind the scenes. There was a lot of people out to get Steve. There was a lot of people out to get Todd. Uh, just, just a total story that, that in the age of social media had that happened, I think we would know a lot more about it than what was truly uncovered. Yeah. I also know there's some animosity between Steve Moore and the Colorado avalanche, which I yes. think is something that kind of got swept under the rug. I, yeah, that's something that I wish would, uh, would, 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 you know, become more public knowledge and something that I, th- I think the avalanche should do right by Steve and actually turn the page on that and talk to him and bring him back to Denver. Uh, I don't think Steve would ever do it, but it's a relationship that should not have soured into what it became because, you know, Steve didn't ask for all of that to happen. Um, but again, you know, this there's a lot of things about social media that are dangerous and that are negatives in society nowadays. One of them being had, had that happen in those times, the kind of threats Todd Bertuzzi would have been receiving would have been pretty dangerous. The kind of threats that Mark Crawford and Matt Cook and even Steve Moore after hitting Naslin would have been re- receiving would have been dangerous. But if there's something that social media could have done was uncover a lot more about that story over the years, especially during the lockout. We just spent 20 minutes talking about Jerome McGinley getting talked to at a rest area. When the NHL season was being completely washed away in 2004, 2005, that Steve Moore incident was still fresh on the minds of many. Had there been social media and Twitter, there would have been reporters out there that would have uncovered a lot more about that than what truly was, even with the pending court case. Um, and I think the NHL really, you know, breathes a sigh of relief daily that moments like that and moments like Bashir and McSorley did not happen in the age of Twitter because it would have really put the NHL on the map a lot more than they were with ESPN and all those, you know, local news websites that were that were talking about those incidents. And Slight credit to the NHL here because that lockout was the major one where they started changing the rules and making yeah. it a less aggressive and less violent yeah. game. And I think a lot of it had to do with that incident. Right it there. absolutely did. That incident happened three, four, five months before before the NHL was locked out. And they knew enough was enough and they knew they couldn't have that happen again. Not in that day, not in that time and not in that day in history uh, or in in. in and what the world was turning into as we know it now, where that's just not okay to have things like that happen. Um, I really think that Steve Moore and that Todd Bertuzzi incident really helped change the game into what we know it to be today, which is far more safer. And of course, we would have had a tweet from Todd Bertuzzi, just generic and vanilla. I'm really sorry about the events. That- it would have- 
it would have been the usual thing that everybody does with the it would have been the notes app on an iphone <laughs> where at yep. the end of the thing you can you can see the clicker in the screenshot yeah i i always hated those <laughs> Uh, well, I guess this is a good place to stop. Talk about DraftKings real quick, guys. Talk, check out DraftKings if you haven't already. They've got great promotions and odds boosts every day. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code MHS when you sign up and get up to $1,000. That's code MHS to get a deposit bonus up to $1,000 for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Uh, it's, it's actually uh, something that I'm going to keep an eye on because as soon as the season becomes more official and there's more dates, especially with the potential realignment things that are happening, I'm really curious to see what the odds are going to be for the Avalanche because I think they're... I feel like they might be the best in the league, especially considering Tampa Bay is going to have to do some work and get rid of some guys just to re-sign Sorelli. So, um, Last I checked, they were a plus 750 on, on the cup. Yeah, and I, I can't remember if that was top or if that was second or third best behind Vegas. That was top. That was top. Okay, yeah. So I think that they're going to be the best odds going into the season. Uh, and if there was any chance of a team like Tampa Bay overtaking them, uh, the amount of maneuvering they're going to have to do, likely with Detroit, because Steve Eisenman is going to go out and get Kalorn or Johnson or Palat or whoever, uh, it's just going to make their team weaker. It's just scary, though, because uh, historically, at least in the last 15 years or so, the favored team going into the season rarely, rarely, rarely wins. Yeah, well, in the last 15 years, we haven't had a pandemic, so everything always happens once in a lifetime. So this will be the year the Avalanche do it, right? There we go. Organizational depth is what it's all about. <laughs> We're just over halfway through the podcast. I want to dedicate the rest of the podcast into doing something that we don't usually do, and that's taking some questions from a few of our listeners. Maybe they're listeners, maybe they're not, but there's some people that you reached out to on Reddit, a nice little subculture there, a lot of Avs fans gather and, and, and chat, um, all things Avalanche. So you put out a question to the guys, right? You, you put questions out, and, and uh, we got a few. We got about four to go over. I think they'll really carry us through the rest of the podcast. So... Let's start with the uh, first question we got. That's from Fart Waffles. Welcome, <laughs> Fart Waffles. <laughs> um, his question is, what are the odds you'd put the Avs going with seven defensemen this year to roster Byram? You can go ahead and start. I don't think they're going to do it. I think the Avalanche want to win the Stanley Cup this year, and I think that means a player like Byram is not going to be rushed into the NHL like Tyson Jost was, uh, like Duchesne and O'Reilly were, like McKinnon was, like Landeskog was. Not that those guys didn't have great rookie seasons, but they don't need Byram right now. They might need him. Uh, we saw during the playoffs when Eric Johnson was injured, Connor Timmins came in. Uh, if, Connor, if, if there's an injury this year and Connor Timmins is not ready and Dennis Gilbert is not the answer and Bowen Byram's kicking ass, maybe Bowen Byram jumps in. Maybe he does what Kevin Shattenkirk did in that season and you know comes out and puts up 10 points in his first 11 games or whatever Kevin did way, way back in 2011. I don't think the Avalanche are going to push to have Byram on the roster, but I think there will be a chance that he pushes his way onto the roster himself by having a great year in, I want to say, the AHL, assuming they have a season, or by having a great development camp or a training camp or whatever the heck is going to happen uh, with this new system of COVID. Um, but I don't think the Avalanche are going to push to have Byram on the roster unless he gives them no choice but to be a regular in the NHL, which I don't think is going to happen. 
I'm going to go a little further. I'm going to not say that the Avalanche might need Byram, but that they're definitely going to need Byram. Um, so that being said, I don't think they have to force the 7D man roster because I think naturally he's going to he's gonna be needed. I mean, he's not going to have to get too many minutes, right? You just want him to get his feet wet. You don't want to give him 30, 40 games. You just want him to get a handful, learn the NHL because he's been, he's been in – in the BCHL, right? I mean, it's sure he might be tearing it up there and he might be looking NHL ready, but it's still a far way from the NHL. So while he looks to be the next guy, I don't think we need to rush to giving him a ton of minutes. Um, I've never really liked the 7D concept anyway. I really like the uh, just even even out the forward lines. But you also got to think with a weapon like McKinnon, maybe it could be beneficial to give him you know, closer to, to 28 minutes a game. I know it's crazy how I already kind of said it's going to be tough on the players' bodies this year. You really got to be careful with their health. So maybe giving Nathan McKinnon um, 28 minutes and kind of double shifting him here and there isn't the best solution, but you'd love to see him be on the ice and, and um, as much as possible, right? Yeah, and just to correct that really quickly, he played for the Vancouver Giants in the WHL. Um, I just want to save your bacon before we hear about it on Twitter. Uh, he's not in the BCHL. He's in the WHL. And he's in had British a Columbia, season. though. That's, in, yeah, that's in, close in, enough. In British Columbia. Yeah, no, I like that. That's a good save. Um, <laughs> he's had a great year. So in 2018-19, when he had 71 points, I believe, in 67 games, that's what got him drafted fourth overall. And last year, he did start slow, but he ended up with 52 points in 50 games. And that was in a season, as we know, that was cut short because COVID, you know, obviously wiped out all of junior hockey uh, in, in mid-March. The thing is about Bowen Byram, why it's an interesting situation for me is the Avalanche have their top six, and we know who they are. It's, let's say... You know, Makar plays with Taves, let's say Gerard plays with Johnson, and let's say Cole plays with Graves. You know, whether Graves and Taves switch, so be it. Those are your top six. Number seven is likely Dennis Gilbert, who was acquired in that trade with Brandon Saad for Zadorov. And then number eight and nine, in no order for seven, eight, and nine, are Connor Timmons and Shane Bowers. Number one, I don't know what the hell situation is on Connor Timmons. That'll be one of the first questions we ask Jared Bender when training camp hopefully takes off in the next four to five weeks. But of Gilbert, Byram, and Timmons, one of those guys is going to need to step up because the reality is the chances of all six of the Avalanche's top defensemen being healthy for all 56 games plus the playoffs is unlikely. It never happens. It didn't happen in the playoffs. We saw Johnson get hurt. We saw uh, we saw other guys go down with injuries. Uh, we saw McCarr miss a few games as well. It is very likely that the Avalanche are going to need one of those guys to step up. And that's where I think Bowen Byram can work his way onto the roster. All he has to do is beat out Timmins and Gilbert. Gilbert's got some NHL experience. Timmins was a was a breath of fresh air. It was great to see him come in in the playoffs before he got hurt again. It was great to see him come into the playoffs and be a good player because he has a future in the NHL. So the Avalanche have that depth at, uh, at defense that they don't have at forward, in my opinion, where you have three capable guys. And one of them is obviously Bowen Byram, who's never played professional hockey. Um, but I think he can do it. I think there is a possibility, like you said, where he's going to be needed. And I don't think it's going to be a situation where the Avalanche are forced to play him just to get his feet wet, like you were explaining. I think it's going to be a situation where there's injuries and we say, hey, this kid's been tearing it up. Let's bring him into the lineup. Well, you see Jared Bednar do it all the time when, with his call-ups. He doesn't like to stick to one call-up. He likes to rotate them around, see what they have to offer, see what, what works, what doesn't. So, you know, one one defenseman goes down, sure, maybe it's Timmons that gets up. 
then Gilbert's next, and then Byro. I think he likes to kind of do a healthy rotation just to get everybody some minutes and to, to get a better idea of what he's working with. Yeah, exactly. And and in a season where there's going to be 48, 52, or 56 games in 100 days or 95 days or whatever the heck it's going to be, um, that gives Byram a far greater chance to play. And it's simply a numbers game. He's he's one of the top nine or ten best defensemen on this team. The fact that he was part of that bubble experience says a lot to me as well. Um, and the fact that the Avalanche just don't have anybody else. They don't have depth depth guys that they do want forward. They don't have guys that, you know, that equate to Logan O'Connor. They don't have Mark Barbario anymore. They don't have Kevin Connaughton anymore. All they have is Dennis Gilbert and then a couple of young guys in Timmins and in Byram. And the, and the fact that they were both part of the bubble says to me that they will be part of that group. Yeah, interesting that you point that out. You're right. They don't have that. You know, we saw a lot of failed experience with the defensive groups looking for that guy, right? The Mark Alt, Anton Lindholm. They just never yeah. stuck around. They really need to uh, shore up the AHL there, Yeah, there really is nobody. Who are they going to call up? I think they signed... Uh, did they re-sign McDonald? I think they re-signed McDonald from, from, from the Colorado Eagles, but they just don't have a lot of those guys anymore. Mark Barber, like Kevin Connaughton is, a, is, is an NHLer. He was a, let's call him a perennial career NHLer, even though he was a five, six, seven defenseman, and he was playing with the Eagles. So he was a guy that you could always look at and say, let's bring him up. They even had Callie Rosen. That was another guy that you can say, yeah, this guy is, uh, this guy is, a, is, is, a, is an NHLer, has NHL experience. They don't have that anymore. All they have is Dennis Gilbert and then those two youngsters. So you know, my, my answer has kind of shifted as we've talked about it more. I think they're going to use Byram, not because they're forcing him into a spot, but because he is one of their top eight or nine defensemen. I look at, you know, I'm a big European soccer guy, and a lot of times the best teams, right, they'll have a league game on Saturday, and then they got to jump into Champions League on Tuesday. Well, in order to make that work, and soccer is such an exhausting sport, they have to have a huge group of guys to work with. That's what I see the NHL being more this year. It's not... I honestly think a lot of teams are going to average 25 guys had played NHL minutes this year, right? Rather than keeping it lower, maybe yeah. even higher. So I think it's yeah. just, it's going to be unprecedented in, in usage for players this year, I think. So thanks to Fart Waffles and for that great question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that's why that's why I, I mentioned them earlier with the Aaron Dell situation. But Toronto always does this thing where they sign... 13, not 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 NHL capable players at league minimum. And they have the bottom three or four of them all in the AHL making seven or 800,000. Not every team has the money to do that. Not every team can pay their top line in the AHL a total of $2 million, you know, between the three of them. Uh, Toronto can do that. That's why they can have Aaron Dell making 850K starting in the AHL and then possibly coming up. Um, and that's going to be a difference this year. Having, you know, 25, 26, 27 capable NHLers, when you get to 25, 26, 27 with the Avalanche, it's slim pickings. It's the guys that they signed on on this year's version of July 1st on October 9, the career AHL tweeners. It's the it's the Tynans, it's the Martin Couts, it's the guys that don't have the experience. Um so that's going to be a very big thing this year and that's why like you said, you know, Shout out to Fart Waffles for the question. Um, I can't. I can't get over that. Uh, and he's got a four where the fart is, so or where the A is. So it's F four R T Waffles. Um, but that's why I think Shane Bowers is going to be a, a useful NHLer this year, is because he's gonna. It's just a numbers game. The Avalanche are going to need nine or ten defensemen, and he's one hundred percent part of those nine or ten guys. Yep. That brings us to our next question from username two aspirational. 
What team do you think will be the Avs' biggest rival in the 2020 decade? Along the same lines, which team will get a will we get a repeat series with first? Meaning Calgary, Dallas, Nashville, Phoenix, Arizona, Arizona, San Jose. Um, I'm gonna go with Dallas. Dallas is going. Uh, it's a hard one. I think Dallas. I think okay, Dallas so is definitely the answer go, because of the adjusted divisions, right? So Dallas is going to be the answer in terms of the adjusted division in the short term, but I think in the long term the answer is going to be Vegas because I think Vegas is going to be a good team for about five years, maybe four, and then they're going to fall off like the San Jose Sharks did this past year when all of their old guys suddenly Vlasic and Carlson and Burns and Couture and all these guys and they obviously lost Pavelski coincidentally to Dallas. All of these guys suddenly. We're on the wrong end of 35, making seven, eight, nine million dollars. And for Carlson's case, eleven and a half million a year. He's not 35, but he's just beaten and battered. Um, I think that's what's gonna happen with Vegas. So what that says to me is if you remember the days of LA and Chicago in 2012, 13, 14, 15, when they were the top two in the West every single year, going at it, always the funnest series. I think the version of that, the version of Colorado Detroit, the version of Colorado Dallas from back in the day in the Western Conference final is going to be the Avs in Vegas over the next half a decade. But in terms of that team that's just not going to go away and is always going to be that pest and is always going to be that team that beat you in Game 7 in the playoffs, sounds familiar. They're going to be the new Minnesota Wild. The Dallas Stars are going to be the new Minnesota Wild, and Vegas is going to be the team that the Avalanche play a lot in the playoffs. Right. you got to look at teams that are going to be good, right? Because what's a rivalry when one team sucks and the other one? Exactly. And that's, that's the other thing. I just don't know how good Dallas is going to be. I know we doubted them the entire time in the bubble, but they're going to be without Bishop for another three or four months. They're going to be without Tyler Sagan for another three or four months. Well, two to three when the season starts in a month. No one knows if Anton Hudobin is going to repeat whatever the hell he just did in the playoffs. Uh, no one knows if Jake Ottinger is going to be a career NHLer. And no one knows if these other young guys they have are going to step up. I think Dallas's style is what gets under the Avs' skin more. I'd like to say Vegas would exactly. be a great um, rivalry for Colorado, but I just don't think they're that fierce, in all honesty. In, in all honesty, you know? Plus, you've got Ryan Reeves on that bench. There's not a single person on the Colorado <laughs> Avalanche roster that could even put a dent into Ryan Reeves. So that being said, I think yeah. the Avalanche comport themselves and they don't get out of line, so that way they don't <laughs> get pumped by Ryan Reeves, right? Yeah, so again, I'm going to go back to what I said. I think the Golden Knights are going to be the team the Avalanche are always fighting for the title in the West for, uh, or in the West with, and that in itself is going to create a rivalry, even if it's not super intense. Um but yeah, Dallas is going to be the team that gets under the Avs. Dallas is going to be the new Minnesota Wild. The difference is hopefully the Avalanche don't get beaten by them every day, every year, every season, every game. Because the the Wild were not necessarily a contender in 2012 and 13 and 14 and 15 or 16 or whatever. Those, those five or six years when the Wild just wouldn't go away and always beat the Avs, they weren't always a contender. They were a, a, a bubble team that barely makes the playoffs that maybe wins a first-round series if they play the Avs, and then they don't do anything more than that. They've never been to the third round. They're one of six teams, including the Avalanche, that have not been to the Western Conference Finals since the 4 lockout. Um, but the Dallas Stars are going to be that team. They're going to be the team that gets under the Avalanche's skin. They're going to be the team that's always fighting. That playoff series really created 
a lot of heat and a lot of fierce, uh, you know, battles between the two teams, similar to the, that 2014 series against Mini. I don't think the Arizona series did that. I don't think the San Jose series did that. Neither did Nashville, neither did Calgary outside of Kachuk and Zadorov. Um, so there is, there is definitely going to be some bad blood there. Uh, considering the division realignment, which is going to go into what our next question is, uh, and the fact that Dallas will be a part of that, I think that's going to help. I've as got well. one more though, and the division the division realignment is going to kind of throw a wrench in this. But I think St. Louis, Colorado, could really brew up yeah. to be a great rivalry because for what the past five six years that's they've a good been one. side by side, each trying to inch in front of the other one, and I think they're very they're very similar teams. They match up well. The the bubble and the pandemic took away what could have been an excellent Avalanche St. Louis series this year. That's the one thing that I wish we could have had. Obviously, St. Louis wasn't entirely in it when the bubble was, you know, when the bubble experience was happening. They lost, they got upset by the Vancouver Canucks. But if there's one thing I wish we can go back in time and not have this pandemic for in terms of hockey, it's so that the Avalanche and the Blues can meet in probably the second round. That would have been a lot of fun to watch. I would have loved to see that. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, the realignment is a one-year thing. Colorado will be back in a division with St. Louis. And unlike Dallas, I still think St. Louis is a contender. And unlike Vegas, I think St. Louis is, is set up to be a contender for more than the next five years. So are the Avalanche. So that's a good one. That's one that I completely forgot about. But I think... Uh, that's definitely one to keep an eye on. Uh, they will likely meet in the playoffs a few times as well. And the reoccurring series that we will probably get first get, has to be Dallas, right? I think we. Yeah. I think so too. I think so too. This year's this year's going to be the year. We're we're going to go into the realignment question soon, but this year is going to be the year. The Avalanche are going to meet Dallas. There's a big possibility they can meet them in the first round, whether they're the two three seed and Vegas takes the division or. The more likely scenario, I think the Avalanche will take the division and Dallas will be the four seed. That brings us to our next question from username MileHighTech234. Assuming the proposed division alignment happens, Avs would be in the West Division alongside the Ducks, Kings, Sharks, Yotes, Knights, Wild, and Stars. How do you believe this affects the Avs' projected standings? Is the new division easier, harder, or about the same? We kind of touched on this a couple podcasts ago, okay, if not the last yeah. one, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I retract my statement. There's no way the Dallas Stars are going to be fourth place in this division because the competition outside of Colorado and Vegas is Minnesota, who's on a downward spiral, the, the, the Coyotes, who are just a shit show and then those three teams in california there is the possibility that one of anaheim la or san jose could bounce back i think san jose could be a bounce back candidate maybe even anaheim um but yeah that third place spot is dallas's spot to lose uh and if the avalanche are first place they obviously wouldn't play dallas in the playoffs unless dallas upsets vegas um but in terms of the actual question so now that we got that out of the way in terms of the actual question this is far easier and the reason why it's easier is because so the Avalanche were dealing with St. Louis and Dallas. And now they're going to deal with Vegas and Dallas. I would call that a wash. Vegas is a great team. St. Louis is a great team. Dallas is still the same team. The difference is those bottom four teams, the three, the three California teams and the Coyotes, are not good teams. They are a lot. They are going to be far less of a challenge. Uh, and obviously the Wild are still there, but they're going to be far less of a challenge than the National Predators and the Winnipeg Jets. So uh, who am I missing? Oh, Minnesota, obviously. So they're going to be a far less challenge than Winnipeg and Nashville. Winnipeg and Nashville are at least eight, nine, ten seeded teams. The California teams and, and the Coyotes are not. I know the Coyotes were an eight seed this year, 
but they won't be next year. So I think in terms of, especially if this is a division heavy schedule, like we're expecting it to be, the Avalanche are going to beat up on the California teams. They're going to beat up on the Coyotes and then their challenge will be the, the, the stars and the golden Knights. So because of that, I think the division is easier. Um, and in terms of what's going to happen with the projected standings, the Avalanche are going to win the division. It's going to be them or Vegas. And I think they're going to take Vegas in terms of the regular season standings. I think that's a strong breakdown. Um, I'm hesitant to jump fully on board just because of what I've learned from the past. And I think it's easy to say, yeah, this is going to be a weaker division, but it's always so unpredictable how teams are going to look. I mean, as a betting guy, I've been betting since I was 18. So I've been following, and of course I'm an NHL fan, so I've been betting the NHL since I was 18. And what you always see and what I always get burned by is the beginning of a season I look back at the season prior and I still have in my head which team is better, right? And you never expect some teams to take those early season steps forward. Yeah. And you yeah. never you just never know. So I I am yeah. I'm with you. I think you're right, but I'm hesitant to fully jump on board that. The funny thing is like the Wild could easily jump out and have a good season. Um even though who's their goalie now? Cam Talbot, I think. Um I still think one of those California teams, I still think San Jose could bounce back. That's the funny thing. So, yeah, I know I'm saying that based off of last year's schedule, and it's hard to really say. But in terms of the top of the division, I would say Vegas for St. Louis is going to be a wash and then having Dallas to deal with. Uh, so an all likely an a likely scenario is if if the worst case scenario is the Avalanche are going to have a, a division similar to what they've dealt with in the past, um, and it's the fact that they have you know two heavy teams at the top and then a bunch of tweeners at the bottom, uh, which by the way the team that I was forgetting about in the division is friggin' Chicago, but you know that's another team that's it's a middle of the pack in terms of playoff bubble teams. Um, granted, I think they're going to fall off majorly this year, and it's it's a shame the Avalanche don't get to play against whoever the hell the Blackhawks are going to have in goalie. Yeah, yeah. And early season betting is hard, and I think late season betting is hard in the NHL. Yeah. These are awesome questions. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't expecting uh, such good questions, but those are are three great questions. I think Um, the fourth one is something we've also Right, that's what I was about to say, is I think we've touched on all of these questions, so perhaps these guys that submitted the questions aren't exactly listeners, but hopefully we got some new listeners out of them, and, and I'd like to welcome them to the podcast, if so. So that brings us to our last question. Shoot, I forgot to write down the username. Do you have it in front of you by chance? It's Puck Ronan. Puck Ronan. Question is, how likely is it that Eric Johnson will waive his no-move clause for the expansion draft? If he doesn't, how likely is it the Avs would buy him out? Is there any chance of the NHL introducing a compliance buyout before the draft? So this one is a – okay, are you familiar with Reddit at all? Not really. Okay, so this one has a minus two beside people it. Down, you can upvote people downed it? Yeah, you can upvote or – yeah, you can upvote or downvote. Uh, the funny thing is with the Avalanche Reddit – it used to be like an up arrow and a down arrow. Now the upvote is an avalanche logo and the downvote is a Minnesota Wild logo. Hmm. <laughs> so going back to two aspirationals question, that Minnesota Wild logo is eventually going to be a Dallas Stars logo. But um, in terms of this question, it's a minus two right now. And the reason why that is, is I think there's a lot of Eric Johnson fans out there that are saying, who the hell do you think you are saying the avalanche are going to buy him out using a compl- compliance or a regular buyout on him? I'll answer the second part first. I don't see the NHL introducing a compliance buyout. And the reason why I say that is because that means more money the owners have to spend. Actually, 
there's a possibility they could, and maybe that's something the NHLPA uh, negotiates for. Maybe that's one of the concessions the NHLPA asks for as the NHL asks them to, to give up more money in terms of escrow and more money in terms of uh, payment deferrals. Maybe the NHLPA says, okay, let's have a compliance buyout so that players can get bought out, which opens up cap space for guys like Hamannick and Hoffman and these guys to sign. So I, I, I can't say... You know, I, you know what? Yes, I'm going to go with yes. I think the NHL introduces – this is a great part about question and answer sessions. You don't get to plan for them. Uh, I think the NHL will introduce a compliance buyout, and I think that's because it's going to be a concession that the NHLPA asks for. Now, in terms of the first part of the question, I know I've kind of tiptoed around this uh, in other podcast episodes, but I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this with a lot of confidence. I don't believe the Avalanche go out and acquire – Devon Taves for two second round draft picks and sign him to a four year extension without Joe Sackett going to Eric Johnson and saying, Hey, we have to protect McCarr. We have to protect Gerard. If we bring in this guy, we have to protect him. If they brought in a defenseman that is the equivalent of a Brandon Saad, which is somebody who could help, but is also a UFA at the end of the year. I would say, yeah, sure. This is someone who's going to be a UFA at the end of the year, and they're going to protect Johnson, McCarr, and Gerard. But I cannot see under any circumstance. I know you're in win-now mode, but I cannot see under any circumstance Sackett goes out and trades two second-rounders for a young defenseman in his prime, gives him a four-year deal without having that conversation with Eric Johnson and his agents. So... How likely is it that Eric Johnson will waive his no-movement clause? I absolutely think he will. And I think he will because the Avalanche and Seattle are both aware that— Ron, or the Avalanche and Johnson are both aware that Ron Francis in Seattle is likely not going to take Eric Johnson. Yes, I know it's, a, it's an enticing veteran to have on a team that's going to that's gonna need veteran presence, but you're going to get a lot of those around the league without having somebody who's a lot older and, you know, often injured like Eric Johnson is. And let's face it, the Avalanche also have Ryan Graves, who's going to be unprotected. And as well, there's going to be options at forward like Donskoy or Jost or maybe even Comfort that are going to be a lot more enticing with Graves than an old Eric Johnson at $6 million. So how likely is it that he's going to wave? I think 100% he will wave. Right. I think the question isn't how likely is it that Eric Johnson will wave, but how likely is it that Seattle would want a guy like Eric Johnson? And I think that's what people have more trouble with is – you don't want to see Eric Johnson eventually end up on a scrub team like, you know, the Coyotes or Carolina where they just go to rot and until and their career ends, right? But I think a place like Seattle could be a great place for him. I think that would be a fun place to see Eric Johnson go if he were to go. But again, I, 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 it just doesn't seem like a good I just don't choice. see it. I don't yeah. see it happening. Right. See, the thing about Eric Johnson is Eric Johnson, you know, as, as unfortunate as this is because he's a hell of a guy and he's played a lot of hockey – he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's going to be 40, 41 years old and still kicking it in the NHL. He's going to be somebody like Johnny Boychuk, who just announced his retirement at 32. I mean, obviously, Eric Johnson's around that age as well. But he's going to be somebody who's going to retire with like a 14 or 15-year NHL career. Um, he's not going to be a 20-year guy. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Boychuk was different. He had the eye injury. But Eric exactly. Johnson's body, he's 32 as well. His body's yeah. like he's 42, right? I mean, it, it seems that way lately. Like, I could see a situation where if the Avalanche win a cup over the next two to three seasons, that Johnson retires before 35. 
or right when this contract expires, which is another three years. So I just don't see him being a good choice for Seattle. I know Vegas went out of their way and took somebody like Derek Engeland, but I just think there's going to be far greater, better options available for Seattle because A, number one, teams are learning from what Vegas did and they're not going to give you all of these players um, you know, and draft picks and things. So they're just going to say, take our best guy. And if that in Anaheim means taking taking Vatanen or Theodore without all of this other kerfuffle and stuff that they had to do to make it work or Marchesol and all these things that happen, then that's what it's going to be. And number two, teams are going to be offering Seattle better players because wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we can't afford to keep them because the pandemic has completely ruined our salary structure. So if you're the avalanche, you might keep Don Scoy unprotected and protect Jost and be like, take him, please. I know he's $3.9 million, but he's a good player. Please take him. We want to save some money. So... I just can't see Eric Johnson at $6 million with a beaten down body like that being the guy Seattle takes. I can't see it. And I can't think of a scenario where Joe Sackick hasn't already gone to Eric and talked to him about this. Yeah, or even better, I could see Eric Johnson being the captain that he is going to Joe Sackick exactly. and saying, hey, bro, don't be afraid to. Yeah. Like there's no way that conversation. Yeah, there's no, there's no way that conversation didn't happen already where Eric Johnson's like, yeah, I'll absolutely wave. They're not going to take me bring in Taves, and let's have a damn run at this cup. Yeah, absolutely. So that concludes our question segment from the uh, Reddit followers, I guess. Not so much listeners, but hopefully they're listeners now. So welcome. Thanks for hanging out with us. I hope you've enjoyed the show so far. Now it's time to wrap it up. I wanted to check in with you. I'm not all over social media as I should be, I guess. is there? We haven't had a social media moment of the week in quite some time. Are these Avs players doing anything noteworthy on social media at all? Gabe Landeskog's posting a lot of pictures and videos of his cute little daughter. Um, that's pretty much all I could think about right now. Um, and that's very much noteworthy. Um, Tyson Berry, who's not an avalanche anymore, recently got engaged and he posted about that. So that was great. Shout out to Tyson. Um, I hope you're charging Kadri a lot of rent for that house because you missed out on a Stanley Cup contending team. Um but that's about the only thing. The last thing that I will mention from social media, and I'm bummed that the Avalanche Twitter account tweeted this because I thought I was so great with my research in finding this beforehand. Um, but it's another on this day that they posted on Facebook. So let's give this the social media moment of the week. I was going to mention this anyway, but since the Avalanche tweeted it, I'll go ahead and I'll source them. Three hours ago, the Avalanche tweeted, on December 6th, 1999, Sandus Ozilinch tallied three goals against the Vancouver Canucks for the first time and is still the only hat trick in a game by an Avalanche defenseman since they relocated. It was also the first Aval- uh, the first hat trick ever scored at the newly opened Pepsi Center, which is now Ball Arena. So Sandus Ozilinch has the only hat trick in Avalanche blue liner history. How quick till Kel McCarr breaks that record? He almost yeah, did it in the playoffs. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Off the top of your head, how, do you know by chance how many uh, hat tricks Nathan McKinnon has had? Because I feel like that's a guy that we don't see enough hat tricks from. For th- as potent no. of a goal scorer he is, we just haven't seen enough hats thrown for him. In his second NHL season, he had one against Tampa Bay. I remember him having one. No, he didn't have one against Dallas. That was uh, Duchesne. Ah, that's the only one I could remember. I'm, I'll, seeing... I'll, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say two. I'm thinking three. I've seen one versus San Jose, the Tampa Bay. Yeah, I think you're right. It might only be two. It might only be two. God damn it, JJ. I thought you had this lined up. Now I'm gonna oh, no. This it. is just an, uh, a 
question that just popped into my head. Um, just considering you brought in, you brought up hat tricks. We didn't have yeah. <laughs> that social media moment planned. I just threw it out there. So, yeah, interesting stuff. All right, well, that brings us to the Mile High Sports three stars of the week. This is how we wrap up every show for those Reddit followers that maybe this might be their first Hockey Mountain High episode. So that brings me to star number three. This is going to Carter Savoy. Carter Savoy is an Edmonton Oilers draft pick, currently a freshman with the University of Denver, and he is tearing it up right now. The NCHC got he their start so going. Great. Yeah, he's already got four goals in three games. Just ridiculous stuff going from Carter Savoy as a freshman, too. Uh, scary stuff to see what uh, what he's going to do in Edmonton. Too bad he's not a Colorado prospect, but it's fun having this guy in town, and I love uh, giving the DU Pios some support because they are underrated program here in the city. Star number two, that goes to Patrick Waugh. As you said, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of having him in town, and what he did for this city is just, uh, is just uh, you know, you can't really put it into words. It, it, what he did is just so great for the hockey community around here, and without it, as we said, wouldn't be the same city hockey wise. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Patrick Waugh really, really changed the way that thing that hockey is seen around here. And I know there's a bit of a bitter taste in, in, in avalanche fan and avalanche faithful's mouths because of the way that it ended in 2016, but it was for the better. It brought us Jerry bed, Jared Bednar and Jared Bednar is going to bring us more Stanley cups. Uh, unlike Jerry Bednar. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was, it was, a. Uh, it's it's definitely he's definitely always worthy of a star on this podcast and in Avalanche, uh, in the Avalanche universe and Avalanche faithful and and in in Denver, is Patrick Jerry, is Jerry Bednar Jared's evil twin brother with a mustache? Jerry Jerry Bednar, yes, <laughs> it's the evil twin brother with the mustache. That's who Jerry Bednar is. Star number one. This one's easy. We started the show with him. It's just good to see his face. Good to see his smile. Good to hear from him. See that he's doing okay. Jerome Aguila, we miss you around here. It bumps me out that he decided to to call home in Boston rather than Colorado. That's I think that's rare. You know, when he first moved here, I know he said that the re- one of the reasons why he agreed to sign with the Avalanche was because they had a great program for his kids and it was a great city and somewhere he could raise his kids. Um, and that's always been a big thing. I don't know what you know, the validity behind this is, but when, when people were talking about his living situation in Boston yesterday on Twitter, cause there was a lot of people talking about this, somebody mentioned that they have a good program, a good, uh, young girls hockey program in Boston that his daughter plays, uh, plays in. And, uh, that was ultimately what sent him there rather than Denver. Um, and let's face it, if you're Jerome McGinley, you remember your time with the avalanche, it sucked. I know yeah. Colorado is a beautiful place, but if I was Jerome driving around downtown Denver and driving around the I-25, passing by Bronco Stadium and passing yeah. by Ball Arena and all this, all I'm going to think about is how much of a crummy experience I had here and how it ruined the end of my career. Here's the bar I used to drink at after we'd lose and yeah. until I went home. We did, cl- they didn't make the, the He didn't get to the playoffs once. He signed after that 2014 run. And he never made the playoffs. There was a lot of teams that wanted him and a lot of teams that made playoff runs. So it's an unfortunate experience. It sucks that it didn't work out for him here. Um, it sucks that the Avalanche couldn't get him a cup. But in Boston, he he had a great time in 2013. Uh, sorry, not 2013, in 20, uh, 2014. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why he probably didn't move to Denver. Uh, one of them being what I read on Twitter is that his daughter plays hockey in Boston. I'm sure if we have any listeners in Calgary, they just threw their device against the wall because 
why wouldn't he move to Calgary rather than Denver? That's a good right? point. So. Honestly, yeah, that's a good point. He would definitely well, do that. That'll do it for this week's episode of Hockey Mountain High. Before we get out of here, I mean, we've said a lot. This episode went longer than I expected it to, being an off-season episode and not much going on to talk about. But do you have anything else that you maybe want to throw out there before we get out? That's pretty much it. Right now, we are bringing you episodes. You know, we're supposed to be doing this twice weekly like we were in the playoffs, which was a lot of fun. But right now, it's once every two weeks. So we sort of flip the one and the two because there just isn't much to talk about. Once the season gets underway, not even the season itself, but once the NHL has a clear plan and a path towards this new return to play format that they're going to have for this upcoming season, um, we will turn out a lot more podcasts. We're going to have some guests on for you, some bigger names. So just hang in there with the rest of us as we wait for hockey to start back up in 2021. Yep. And that being said, we love every single one of our listeners. So thanks for hanging out with us today. Of course, we're available on Twitter or anything else you need us for. Um, I guess for Arif, I'm JJ. Hockey's for everyone. And we got you.